Well, the title of the seminar that we've got uh, today is The Race Set Before Us, which is my cheesy play on words for a subject that very much is set before us by uh, not only the surrounding culture, but also with the, the larger discussions that are taking place within evangelicalism. Uh, th- that is that the issues of race and racism, as well as social justice and uh, the relationship between those matters to the mission of the church, uh, are very much um, popular, and, and you know, the, that's a question that's being asked uh, all over Christendom at the moment. And so uh, Carl started us off last week with uh, sort of an introduction to uh, those matters, defining some terms, trying to bring some, some gospel clarity. And we knew that uh, from that seminar, which, of course, it was impossible to say everything that needed to be said in, in an hour, um, you know, that there, we knew that there would be questions. And, and honestly, even apart from the seminar, we knew that folks at our church would have heard of these matters and uh, would have questions and say, well, what, how, how do we biblically understand uh, some of the, the language, some of the discussion that's happening, not only in the wider culture, but also uh, in wider evangelicalism? And so we wanted to have a, a Q&A to, to address that. What we're going to do is we've got some questions that were submitted you know, during the last week, uh, as well as some questions that we've prepared that thought would, we thought would be helpful to have answered. And we also want to take your questions. We're going to intersperse that. So I'll have some questions here that I'll read for, for Carl and Han. Uh, I might comment here or there. I'll, and if you know me, you, you probably... Mine. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but my job really is supposed to be a moderator. Um, anyway, I'm still, a, so much to say I'm still a preacher. Um, yeah. So, so we'll have some, some questions that we'll, we'll ask and answer, and we'll have some questions from you that we will ask you to... Uh, is, what, what, what are we doing with the mic? So are they just going to come back to the, the sound table? Yeah, so if you have a question, eventually make your way back to the, to the sound table there. And, uh, is it a wireless? Wire? Okay, they'll, they'll pass them around too. Um, real quick, just I think this is going to help us all the qualities for, for that part, part of the seminar... Uh, the qualities of a good question, really quickly. A good question is on topic, right? So to, today, that topic covers how the issues of race and social justice interact with the evangelical church and its mission. So, so that's what we're talking about. We would love to answer your questions about like the, the Levitical laws of sores and, 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 and all that stuff. Boils. Boils. You know, we'll, we'll answer that at another Q&A time. Uh, a good question can usually be articulated in under 30 seconds. So before grabbing the mic, uh, think it through, maybe even write it out first on maybe your phone or some notes that you've got there, and, and make sure you're, you're asking what you want to ask in a crisp 30 seconds or less. Uh, and a good question is actually a question. Yes. <laughs> you, yes. you, you are not, I'm, in all seriousness, you're not trying to make a declaration in question form. Uh, you're not trying to get a soundbite from us so that you can, uh, you know, cut and paste and say, this is what these guys said for a debate later with your friends. And, you're not, and you are trying to genuinely learn from the answer that you're seeking. So uh, ask questions that are really questions. All right, with that. Well, one oh, more thing, uh, yeah. just before Mike uh, prays and launches us into it. Um, just uh, also, if the question could be one of general applicability that would benefit maybe numerous people, that would be great. If you have a very specific question, we actually set this Q&A specifically in the second hour so that we could stay and answer questions if people had specific or more narrow questions. But uh, try to keep your questions of broader applicability if possible. 
Excellent. And just, just before I pray, uh, for those of you who don't know, Mike Riccardi, pastor of Local Outreach Ministries. Han Cho, I'm a pastor in Cornerstone, as well as a lawyer by my profession. Carl Hargrove, pastor of Anchor um, and Grace Advance. So now you know us. All right, let's pray and ask God's help. Father, we uh, come before your throne in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, so thankful that we have been washed in his blood, justified on the basis of a righteousness that is not our own, and that we can come into your presence as, as redeemed sinners uh, because uh, of his merits, and, and that your holiness is, is not offended by our sinfulness because it has been nailed to the cross. And uh, as the body of Christ, we gather to worship you, and, and we, we delight in the word that, that Phil Johnson brought us this morning concerning Psalm 13, and we rejoice in the fact that through the struggles of life, we can sing to you because you have dealt bountifully with us. We, we come to you asking for wisdom because uh, these matters plague our, our culture, our country, our, our world, and, and even our, con- our own consciences. And we pray that you would uh, guide me and Carl and Han in, uh, in what we say, that we'd be able to help our people uh, think through these issues biblically, that we would be able to foster great unity within the body of Christ, and that we'd be able to, um, to confront our culture with the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ as revealed in the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. So we ask for your, your grace, for your, for your wisdom, be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so uh, I think an, an appropriate first question is, um, where, did, where did this all come from? Can you give us a, a, some more background as to why this is a discussion topic all of a sudden? Uh, why has the issue of race and social justice come up again in evangelical discourse lately? That's a great question to really start us off. Um, someone asked me that actually after the seminar on Sunday, why are we here? Why is this a hotbed topic, if you will? And I think sort of a perfect storm has been brewing for a while. And there's some events that have taken place in our country as a recent um, incidents with police shootings um, and mainly with African-American men. Um, the election of Barack Obama as president and those eight years, there was a great deal of friction that took place. And often people would say any criticism of him um, may have been, uh, had its source in racism. And then sort of almost like a polar opposite election, if you will, at least outcome, with uh, Donald Trump in office and uh, criticisms of him because of his associations with certain people. And some uh, outright were um, racist and had tones in that manner. So that's happened. Um, as well, there are a number of churches who have taken up this posture to be advocates of social justice, and there's confusion over the language itself. There have been some significant uh, conferences that have been held by evangelicals, and many of those who would be in attendance or and those that were leading it are, are men that we respect. And so this, this conversation has been brought to the forefront. Um, some of, if you look at it from a, another perspective, though, we're having this discussion in, in part because I'm not sure if we understand fully the focus of the church itself. That needs to be renewed. So if the church is not being taught properly, what is your focus? What is your purpose in life? And then these events that are taking place in culture, and, and now in one sense, society, culture has indicted us for not being as involved. 
So it's this perfect storm that's been taking place. Yeah, and I would add, uh, I'm in particular interested and most interested in this discussion as it pertains to the church, right? Uh, that, uh, Carl mentioned one thing. There was a, a, a conference that celebrated Martin Luther King within the church that was put on by the Gospel Coalition and the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, that was earlier this year. Uh, there was a number of uh, kind of uh, pre- sermons and uh, panels on this topic at the Together for the Gospel Conference, which is largely a group of reformed uh, pastors who uh, uh, you know often get together every two years uh, to talk about these things. So it's a very much a current topic of conversation. And I would say one thing that concerns me very deeply about this conversation within the church, and Carl touched on this last week quite a bit when he talked about terminology, is that we see a lot of worldly terminology seeping into the church, right? You, you see things like white privilege. You, you see things like intersectionality. You, th- you see things that uh, you know, are often concepts that could be taken straight from a critical race theory leftist kind of worldly perspective. And you know what we have, in fact, is instead we have Romans 12 too, which says, and do not be conformed to this world, mm. but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And my desire would be that we always go to Scripture in terms of what does the Bible say about these topics rather than whatever may be stylish in terms of what's going on in the society. Yeah, really good. Okay. Yeah, I, th- I just think that that's one of the things that you're seeing is that the, the church so often... Um, aims to reach the world by aping the world, by becoming like the world. It's sort of the, the, the touchstone of, of uh, pragmatic ministry to say, okay, what is, what is my world concerned about? And given that they're concerned about this, how do we then adapt the gospel or filter the gospel through the lens of those concerns so as not to be uh, an irrelevant church? And, and right now, uh, I think given some of the, the social flows that Carl just kind of went through, the election of Barack Obama, then the election of Donald Trump, in the midst of all these, uh, what, what seems like an enormous amount of law enforcement involved shootings of, of young minorities, um, you know, the way that the media plays that up, that means that that's what the uh, the culture is thinking about, and so the church is saying, "Hey, the, the world is talking about this. We need to talk about it." And and there are aspects of of the scriptures that can be brought to bear on these things. But what we see, as evidenced by Hans' comment, right, is that this is less now biblically driven and more. I think reactionary driven. And I think Mike brings up a good point in terms of the media. You know, there's a proverb, Proverbs 28:25 says as follows, a greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. And you see as the media has become more and more of a for-profit entertainment type of mentality, there is great profit in the media in stirring up strife. And uh, you see it not not just on this issue of social justice and race, but all throughout it, it's become it's become infotainment in many ways. <laughs> so, and, and I just I think that's important to call out. Sure. And, and one of the thing that's important, maybe just to, to lay some groundwork again, is my concern, even as, as expressed last week, was uh, I think there can be engaging conversation that you can have. It can be dialogue. There should be dialogue. Uh, there are issues in society. Uh, that we should be able to interact with, talk about, offer, and even an opinion about, and most definitely offer biblical examples, principles, commands that would address these issues. But what is happening, and my concern is, I expect a certain type of communication to happen in the world, because that's the world. But when I notice the dialogue that is happening within the church and the tone in which 
um, conversations take place or the tone in which exchanges take place, then that's a concern. Yeah. So the church needs to back away and say, okay, if we're, if we're going to have this discussion and we're saying that we shouldn't, yeah. how will we go about it? We cannot possibly, and there's sort of an odd irony to this, that we're talking about social justice and what is right and what is good in society, but at times we're not behaving that way with one another. So, yeah, and yeah. I think that civil discourse is so critically important because we ought to be able to engage charitably and even disagree charitably, right? But there is, a, there is an attitude, not only in the world, but even spe- seeping into the church, as I said, that, oh, you're only allowed to speak on this topic if you are of a certain race. So should you really be up here, by Yeah, the right, way? I should leave. <laughs> Just yeah. You know. yeah, we've got to... You know, that's how it's in the movies nowadays. You know you want to say it. Let's just, let's finish out the process here. I think I see somebody that could volunteer. Let but, me see. But, I'm, I'm here to assert my privilege. <laughs> but in all seriousness, <laughs> in all seriousness, if we are people of the book, right, if we love the word of God, then anyone who understands and knows and can explain the word of God is someone that has something of, to offer us, yeah. amen, regardless of what their background is. Yeah, and I think amen. that's something that's getting lost in this topic. And that's one reason we were thrilled to have Mike up here is because he is a man who loves the Lord and loves the word of God. And the three of us, honestly, just talk about these things together all the time. I mean, that's one of the reasons that the three of us are up here is because I just said, hey, guys, we should, we should talk about this in front of people, you know, because we've had profitable conversations because we are genuinely brothers in the Lord and, and care about this issue Amen. and for our, and for people to be thinking biblically about it. And just one illustration, then I'll move on, of what Carl said. I have a, I have a couple friends from, from my college days that I keep in touch with, and one of them is a particularly ardent uh, sort of proponent of, you know, somebody who would identify as a social justice warrior and who would, who would use terms like intersectionality and, and these sorts of things. And, and uh, she was talking like this long before this, this whole issue was brought to the forefront of the, the church's doorstep. And I, was, I remember just sort of seeing some of her online communication and thinking to myself, man, like, I'm, I'm so glad that that's not the way that the church thinks. I'm so glad that that's not the way that the people of Jesus Christ think, because that's just so obviously unbiblical um, in, in some of the ways that she's thinking. And then give it a few months, and people, professing Christians, people who you know I, I'm good friends with, who I, I would say are, are brothers and sisters in the Lord, are talking the exact same way to the point where you'd think that, that they were having the same conversation, my old, my old you know, unbelieving friend from college and and uh, folks in the church. And so, I mean, I think that, that just puts some color to, we need to address this. When we start talking like the world and looking like the world and behaving like the world, something has gone wrong. So um, with that, with that introduction, let me ask this. Is it right or wrong to see color? Some people speak of not seeing color as evidence that racism has been mortified. Some people are, are proud, in, 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 the, in the best sense of the word, pride of, of being proud, that they don't see color. They say, I don't see color, and because it means that I don't, I don't, I'm not racist, right? Others say that if you claim not to see color, that is precisely racist. <laughs> What's the biblical view? Well, <laughs> uh, the common sense view. Yeah, exactly. No, it really is. You know, um, I, go ahead, and, and I have noticed that recently. There was a time in which you um, it was um, the correct response to say, no, I'm colorblind. I don't see color. I, I see individuals. I'll interact with you as an individual. Um, I, I 
whatever prejudice I may have had has been set aside. I've never had prejudice. But now it's been turned to say, if you say that you see color, then you're not identifying my distinctiveness. Uh, you, you don't see me as the person that I am. And then some would say, well, because you say you don't see color, then you don't understand the issues. You have to see color. You have to see that there's division. You have to see that there is animosity between people. So this causes a friction. What is a person to do? Um, how they respond? And that's why I sort of, well, somewhat seriously say common sense has to be applied um, to this and say, how, what are the basic rules you need just for human engagement with people? Uh, how can we have a saying, you, you say, well, that's changing um, the goalpost. That means at one point in time, that was acceptable, but now it's unacceptable. Then what will it be five years from now? What will it be the next quarter? Hmm. How will I know how to engage with you if it keeps changing? What's, what's the, can we come up with an underlying principle which is a simple, natural engagement with one another that's honest and open. Uh, but if you change it all the time, how could I really communicate with you? Yeah, and I actually talked a little bit about this in the session I did for Sundays in July last year, which is, you know, I think, you know, I hear sometimes, oh, I don't see color at all. You know, I hear that and I'm like, hmm, okay, I hope you never have to uh, send someone to meet someone else and describe them, right? Or I hope you never have to file a police report, you know, because, you know, it's just, it's just obviously, you know, we're not talking about, even Paul himself says in Romans 9.3 that, uh, you know, he talks about his kinsmen according to the flesh, right? That he does acknowledge that there is such a thing as Jew and such a thing as Gentile. And he's not saying he's turning off his perception, but you have to remember that all of the other verses in Scripture, you've got, you know, Galatians 3.28 that talks about there is neither Jew nor Greek. And you see that same distinction in Colossians 3.11 about there not being Jew nor Greek in Colossians 3.11 or 2 Corinthians 5.16. You want to hear a great sermon on 2 Corinthians 5.16. Mike Riccardi preached this about, what, six months ago in big church. And, and it was just talking about we regard no one according to the flesh. And so, you know, the, these are our goals. Our ideal is to treat everybody without partiality, right? It shouldn't matter what race a person is in terms of how you treat them. It doesn't mean to turn off your eyes and, and to, like, ignore, uh, you know, an existing plain reality in front of you. What it means is I'm going to love this brother or sister regardless of their background. Yeah, and here's the other thing about it. look around in this room and you see different colors, you see different backgrounds, and with that, there comes even with it different cultures. And that should be appreciated and lauded. It's a testimony to our great God. Um, in heaven, if we, we project ourselves into the future, there's gonna be these great um, voices that will be singing and giving him praise. These people from all, what, all peoples and races and nations are gonna to come together. Um, so to say that we don't see it, then we don't see it biblically then, because God sees it. Yeah. He, he has selected people from amongst these people groups to say that there's one common bond, which is the bond of Jesus Christ that yeah. brings us together. So we should see it and we should appreciate it. Mm. But a, a part of the thinking uh, when people may make that statement is that, well, you see it and then with it comes prejudice. No, it should be. I see it and it should be uh, appreciation. Yeah. That, just Revelation 5, you know, there's going to be every tribe, tongue, people, sure. and nation. That's a celebration of the, the, the universality, the greatness and the wideness of God's saving grace and mercy, that, that his salvation, he, that he's so magnanimous a God that it embraces every 
kind of person, and there's no uh, single kind of, of people that is, is excluded or, or uh, elevated. Um, it's a, it's a, a feather in, in God's saving cap. It's a jewel in his crown, uh, not some sort of you know, identity play or cause for division. And, and yeah, Acts 10, 34 and 35 says this overtly, right? Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. And so we see this picture of that call offered to all peoples and all nations and how that call rings out and how God would have people from all of those nations and tribes come to him. And we see that truth and that reality in Revelation. But I also think we have to be careful here because in Revelation, we see you know, a beautiful picture, but some people try to then construct an entire philosophy of ministry out of Revelation 7. And really, I'm going to read Revelation 7 to you because I think it's so powerful, this uh, 7 verses 9 and 10. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches, were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So, I mean, that, that verse, it's almost like look, it's a wonderful thing that people from all nations have gathered it, but it's almost more of an afterthought. The focus of those verses is on the worship of God. And, and there's a secondary focus, which would kind of be a conformity in worship and unity in worship together, that all these peoples of all different races were in one voice wearing the same thing. They were all directing praise to God. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that gets missed because you see quite a few organizations trying to use this kind of as a justification for an entire philosophy of ministry that I think overemphasizes the point. Yeah. I mean, just thinking about Second Corinthians 5.16, thank you for that plug. I mean, when, I, when I'm meditating on, you know, that verse, what it means to regard no one after the flesh, I think that that's got to be in two directions, right? That's got to be, when I look outside of myself and I see differences in people, whether they be male, female, whether they be, be black, white, Hispanic, Asian, whatever, that those, situa those realities, though obviously I see them, right, ha have no bearing on my treatment of them, no bearing mm -hmm. on my thinking about them. I don't bring stereotypes and prejudices to, you know, evaluate, oh, I know what you're like because you're, you look like this or you, you, you've been to this place or you have this experience. No, nothing about the, what is merely fleshly, nothing about what is not recreated in Christ is my uh, basis of evaluation, canon of appraisal of anybody within the body of Christ or anybody at all. Um, so looking out. But then also, I think we have a duty, therefore, to not regard ourselves according to the flesh either. I think that we can't have the, the flesh, any aspect of the flesh, whether it's height, weight, skin color, whatever, you know, male, female, whatever it is, cannot be the basis, you know, where we, where we peg the identity of people who are outside of us, but also ourselves. We have to recognize that if we are in Christ, that is the all-consuming marker of our identity. Amen. And, that, and, and I think some people mess up by looking outside of themselves and, and regarding people according to the flesh. And I think a lot of people, too, mess up by taking some sort of pride and, and functioning on their identity uh, based upon w what country their ancestors hail from or what, what shared experiences they might have by other people that, that look like them. And I, I just want to say that, that, that as Christians, my people are the people of the living God, Amen. not 
Italian Americans, you know, for me, yeah. or, or Korean Americans right. for Han. He must increase, we must decrease. Christ is most important. Every other aspect of our lives, including whatever we might identify with, again, and even maybe in a neutral way, those identifications must decrease. I mean, and it's, it's our unity in Christ, which is what matters. And, and I think when Paul says, Israel, my kinsman, according to the flesh in Romans 9, 3, the fact that he feels the need to add the phrase according to the flesh Amen. shows that he's saying, well, these aren't well, my kinsmen. Wait a second. What do you mean, Paul? Aren't, you know, aren't your brothers and sisters, those in the Lord, Jew or Gentile, whatever, whatever ethnicity? Well, yes, you see what I'm, what I'm talking about is my kinsmen according to the flesh. It's, it's the people that I've come from. I have a special affinity for the people who, you know, uh, who's... Carl, you talk about this. We well, talked about I, this. Yeah, we did. Um, in the sense of last week, even Christ's statement. Um, These are my brothers and my brother here, and sister. Here's my brother and my mother and my sister. Matthew 12. Um, this statement as well. If, if you're not willing to even leave mother or, or, or father, then you're not worthy of me. It's a prioritizing of relationships. We see that in Ephesians 4 as well. It's a prioritizing of what is first in my life. How do I do that? That doesn't mean that I discount my culture. It doesn't mean that I ignore that. That's a part of my experience. And in part, think about it for a moment. Uh, if we think about it properly, in Grace Community Church, GMI, what, um, how many families? A hundred families yeah. that are in the field. And we in part think about we want to train men that are on the field so that they can do what? Be better equipped to reach those in their culture. So we recognize that. That's even in our philosophy of our outreach department at this church. That's in part why we have a TA, uh, TMAI. We want to train men in those cultures so you can, you can better identify with them. Say, for instance, I've been to a number of places around the world training, preaching the gospel, but there are people there that you can connect with them better than I can because you have a similar background. There is a language, and even if it weren't language, just the way that one operates, how they interact, what's offensive, not offensive. Um, how it is best to communicate with them. And that doesn't mean you take away anything from the gospel, but those cultural differences are there. And those began because of a fall, and, and then it began because of man wanting to exalt himself and build a tile, tower, and God says, no, you will be dispersed. And ever since then, those lines have been developing. But it doesn't mean that they're inherently wrong. It means that those are distinctions. And we recognize them, but they aren't our identity. And so when Paul says there is neither slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, but all are one in Christ Jesus, one of the things that you'll hear is people will say, well, see, he says there's neither male nor female. And obviously in the church, we recognize distinctions between men and women. You know, we, we recognize the role distinctions between men and women, both in the home and in the church, such that ladies cannot occupy the office of elder on the basis of Paul's teaching, 1 Timothy 2. So we see distinctions remaining in male-female, why should we say distinctions remain in Jew-Gentile, which is sort of the, the ethnic, you know, version of that? I think it's what you're saying. I think that, there, that the distinctions obviously remain. My family is my family. My, you know, I, it, I, I, I am. My skin still is white. We don't morph into, or whatever, not white, but you know what I mean, uh, with a lesser degree of melanin than, than some others, right? Uh, I don't, we don't morph into the same, you know, physical thing, but... Uh, what it means is that 
my place, tell me and, and elaborate on this if you, well, if you would, but my place within the kingdom of God and the way that we treat one another is not affected by those things. Yeah, something else I'd like to add to Use that. your mic, use your mic. Yeah, I don't generally need it, but... Uh, <laughs> for, for, for the recording. Yeah, for the recording purposes only. Um, think about it for a moment. Uh, our enemy is, in fact, um, the devil, Satan, Lucifer. And he is the father of what? Lies. Of lies. A, a part of his objective is to steal, kill, and Destroy. do what? And he wants to cause unity or what? Division. Division amongst us. And what a marvelous scheme if, in fact, he can cause people to begin to place too much appreciation on and, and identity with culture where it causes their <laughs> brothers and sisters to be divided. So we have to be careful of that. Um, I just wanted to emphasize that even a bit more. Yeah, and I, the thing I would also add with Mike is that you see in Scripture that there are clear gender distinctions in Scripture, right? That there are clear passages to men and to women, and you don't see that with respect to individual ethnicities in terms of you, you see a general call in the New Testament to all people to repent and believe, right? And there may be specific uh, discussions about Old Testament uh, situations with the nation of Israel, which obviously was an ethnic distinction, but that's another problem you see with a lot of this kind of racialized discussion today is that you see a lot of people using Old Testament passages out of context and trying to use them in a New Testament context, in the church today kind of context, which, again, is a very different... When you're talking about ancient Israel, which was a theocracy and had certain civil laws, and again, you had a specific ethnicity that was called out as a light to the nations, that's very different from the church today. And I think that's an important distinction that is often kind of uh, glossed over or even attempted to be flattened by some who advocate for a different path than okay. what we're talking about up here. Good. Oh, how many questions are we I know, I know. We're going to go. That. I know. We got we got an hour left. We're going to we're going to But really quickly then, given the given what we just heard then, what do we make of the world's understanding of this idea of representation? Um, one of the members asked, I'm perplexed at the fact that the idea that representation as in racial diversity, ma uh, those matters seem to be leaking into the culture of the church. Can you speak to this idea with a biblical perspective? Uh, the idea that, you're, you know, one of the things that was said at Together for the Gospel was sort of one of the speakers wondering aloud as to why is this conference so white? Why is this church so, why is my church so white? Um, so so how do we answer that kind of perspective? Yeah, we, yeah, we had the discussion about that, and I've, I've actually answered that any number of times over the years. Um, let me give you one example of it. Um, here at the Shepherds Conference, talking with men, and come to me and asked, I'm feeling this pressure that my church is not diverse enough. And okay, but I just asked him, what does that mean for you, diversity? Well, people are telling me that it is too white. I need to have a more diverse church. And the first thing I asked him was really practical, where is your church? <laughs> yeah, first, where is your church? And, um, and he told me where it was located, and I said, I don't know that that's possible. <laughs> Literally, unless you fly people in on Sundays. Not even a, the bus drive would be too long. I mean, it really, they'd be all aggravated by the time they got there. Um, so ask yourself a practical question. Who are the people around me? And so we cannot force, first, you cannot force diversity on a church itself. You can't. Um, because there is a, a pressure that I'm feeling the church is under to diversify. Um, we should diversify as much as practical, allowable, 
reasonable. But here's the question. Do I create an environment, which some might, where people would really be uncomfortable being there? But even then, now that becomes subjective. Uncomfortable based on what? There are people that are uncomfortable coming to Grace Church. They don't like the music. They, they just don't. And that's not white or black or brown or, or it's just we don't, it's just, I'll, I'll get the podcast, but I don't really like the other elements of it because there's a culture here. So people don't identify with that culture. Uh, you have to ask yourself this question when we talk about diversity. Um, is that person qualified to do the job itself? I've, I've received over the years a, a number of calls um, from men that said, uh, we'd like to have you on our staff. We need to diversify. <laughs> no, we really have. And some pretty significant places, and we know about you. You have sound doctrine, your beliefs. And one person said, you know, I'm, I'm looking for someone, this sort of, you know, black reform Calvinist, and I, you were recommended. <laughs> and I thought, wow, okay, that's... Because a... that's the reason you want to go somewhere, right, yeah, Carl? Yeah, that's the reason I want to go. And why are you showing up? <laughs> well, I'm a black reform Calvinist. <laughs> I don't really want to respond. And I appreciate it. We had a conversation. I thought, I don't know if that fits me. Uh, here are some other fellows. You may want to call them, or maybe you don't. I'm not sure. Hmm. Are they qualified um, to take on the position itself? If, say, for instance, it makes sense in, in a ministry, you notice like we have here, um, the population is changing, more Latino population around you. You decide that you're going to have, uh, in my former church, we had a ministry that specifically to um, Spanish-speaking people in our community. It made sense he would do it because we looked around the community. And when we looked for a pastor, guess who I looked for? What would make sense? Yeah, I would think someone so. Someone who speaks Spanish. Yeah, someone who speaks Spanish. <laughs> that would make sense that that would happen. Um, if in a given community there was sort of an influx of a certain people group that was there and you wanted to try to maybe reach into that people group, it would make sense that perhaps you think about perhaps we can get someone that can reach into that people group more effectively. But you can't force diversity on a group itself. And, and, and this is so interesting because that phone call that Carl received, uh, that's what people are advocating for right. overtly in the church right now. There, were, sure. there was a message at the MLK 50 conference that I mentioned to you where basically a pastor got up and said, you churches, you need to hire more black pastors, he was saying specifically. And by the way, not just black pastors, but black pastors who don't think like you do, oh, meaning white people. Really? You know, so it's like now we're I talking about... I didn't hear about, that one. Yeah, yeah. and it was... It was it, that's, that's what he was saying. And it was really... You know, it was really, you know, what, he, are the, what does the scripture say about this? Meaning? Yeah, you know, me, and, and he, it's he just, flat out said, if I had an, uh, two elder qu candidates and one was qualified at uh, a six but was black and another was qualified at an eight but was white, I'd choose the black. No, one. he didn't. Yeah, he did. No, I'm going to have to write him. <laughs> no, but, seriously. See, personally, I take offense to that. Yeah. yeah. And because and, and here's why, and, and this is it's a bit personal, so I try to keep please, my cap on. Um, <laughs> Why would you, what sort of person, would, if they knew that, would accept that position? Somebody who regards people according to the flag. Yeah, recording. Why would you accept a position like that? Yeah. It goes back to, and it just briefly, brief, brief, I'll try to do this. You spoke about 30 seconds. I'll try to do this in 45. Uh, was that a conference about, um, maybe now it's been about 15 years ago. And this was sort of a seed to maybe some of this conversation. I appreciated what was said there. 
And a number of people were making comments about understanding our black brothers in the faith and we have to work together. And you have to go to him first. And what your first part of your conversation has to be, you have to understand his pain. If you don't understand his pain, you won't be able to have a conversation. And this was going on and on until I got to the point I was boiling. And uh, they opened the mic and I went up and I said, friends, um, let me speak personally about this. If you were having a conversation um, about, say, for instance, some aspect of Calvinism, uh, if you were having some conversation about open theism or whatever it may have been, and all of a sudden you stopped it when I walked up and asked me about my pain, I would be highly offended. Because essentially what you're saying is that, well, let's stop that conversation. You can't participate in it until we address your pain. I don't, I don't have any pain. Well, I do. I mean, my, my left knee, I busted it playing. <laughs> I busted it playing college football. I mean, I do. Even right now, I have a little bit of pain. Uh, apart from that, um, have I had experiences in life that were racist experiences? I have. Have my parents... Did they have them? Most definitely. Did my grandparents have them? Most definitely. Um, did my dad, who served his country honorably in Korea and in World War II, then come back and realize he couldn't go to certain places? Sure, that happened. But I don't walk around with that. And I definitely don't judge other people because of it. Uh, that is simply not to approach it. I cannot believe, I, I'm really quite serious here, I cannot believe that he would make that statement publicly. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, I, I'm, I'm happen to be reading right now on my wife's recommendation, the autobiography of Clarence Thomas. Mm -hmm. And it's actually really fascinating. I recommend it to anyone. But, uh, you know, it just talks about this dynamic. And, and again, what do the scriptures say? Uh, it, the, the dynamic of a double standard, right? Mm -hmm. why, why are you going to use... Proverbs 20.10, differing weights and differing measures, both of them are abominable to the Lord. And it's just this kind of notion of uh, even showing partiality. I wrote an article on the topic of affirmative action, uh, which, you know, again, uh, I think that in the world, affirmative action is accepted as a general right and good thing, and you, you can't even speak against it lest you be accused of being a racist. But as we see some of this even start to come to the church, I ask the question, is affirmative action, that concept of giving preferential treatment to someone on, a, on some basis, is that appropriate? But you look throughout the scriptures and you see Exodus 23.3, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his dispute. And again, I just got done talking about how you have to be careful about the Old Testament and uh, you know how you use certain verses in and out of context, but this is talking about the heart of God, that you, you, you're not even supposed to be partial in favor of a rich man or a poor man. Uh, you know, Leviticus 19.15 says a similar thing, you shall do no injustice in judgment, you shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. So all through scripture, you see in Acts 10.34 and 35, I quoted those earlier about God is not a God of partiality. James 3.17, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Mm. And, and I think this is such, this is a th concept that runs throughout the scripture because yeah. that's God's heart toward justice. And, and just to tie it all up with the representation thing, the, the philosophy, the unstated ideology that, that undergirds the notion of representation is my interests cannot be satisfyingly represented unless there's somebody who looks like me and have sh has shared my experiences is in a position to make decisions. In other words, you know, if, if Carl comes onto the elder board and then some of our African-American brothers and sisters, if their reaction is, hey, we got one on the elder board. That is extremely sinful. That's an extremely fleshly way to think of it. As if 
uh, my issue, my concerns as an Italian American, right, cannot be represented in the church unless by other Italian Americans. Well, that's not who we are, first of all and foremost. My, my interests can be represented by anyone who is a called man of God to lead his church. Amen. Who's a, a, a follower of Christ. Again, my people are Christ's people. And, and yes, I have this background, but my, the representation you need to be worried about in colleges and seminaries and churches and these sorts of things is, are these people genuinely saved? Are they Christians? Uh, then you'll be represented Are well. they biblically faithful? And yeah. look, all of the apostles were Jewish, yeah. right? And yet the gospel went out to all the Gentiles. And this is the concept where, you know, you just have to remember that it's not about just like what Mike was saying. But, you know, there's also the flip side of it, too, and I do want to highlight that, is that if our unity is in Christ and if that unity in Christ is what matters, we also need to make sure we are indeed repenting of any Amen. sinful racism or partiality in our hearts. Absolutely. There was a story that about a Pakistani missionary, an American missionary to Pakistan, it's, uh, you know, doing raising support. Oh, what would you do? You question. And the Pakistani said, far better that she marry a Pakistani Christian than an American uh, heathen, I think he said, something like that. And mm. that, that has to be our attitude. Right. If we have these barriers or prejudices in the area of race or class or whatever, then we need to repent of that. Sure. Who's been waiting the longest? Fanny, okay, she do you have the mic? Move. She was back there oh, okay. before we got started, I think. Well, I think this gentleman has the mic. Let's let's take his question while the mic is getting to Fanny. Or sorry. Or was that? OK. Yeah. She... Oh, you were holding the mic to help. Yeah. I thought you had a question. OK, Fanny, you're up. Okay, Romans 13, verses 1 through 4, I think it says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation from upon themselves. My question is, when Rosa Parks um, disobeyed the authorities and stayed in her seat, um, how was that looked at, biblically? <laughs> so, so was so. Yeah, this is basically a question of what is the role of civil disobedience with respect to unjust laws. Yeah. And uh, from a Christian perspective, we would say that. We live in a society where there will be unjust laws. So we would take whatever avenues are legally uh, allowable for us to speak against those laws. And when we step outside of that, then we have to face the consequences of those actions. It doesn't mean that we don't voice against it, but we take the proper avenue that has been placed before us. So question would be, then when she did that, now she has to face the consequence of that decision. Um, because at that time, that was the law. So my dad comes back from fighting for his country, but yet he can't go here or do that. He has to make a choice to say that um, I'm going to personally face the consequence of this action because it, in fact, is unjust. And if there are legal, acceptable means to speak against it, I will do that as well. Um, I know you asked specifically about her. What would God say about her making that choice? Is that more the question, or is that sufficient. Well, I guess I was wondering, would I still be have to go to the back of the bus? <laughs> no, uh, really, uh, that was civil disobedience. Yes. So when we stand up for our rights, we'll be 
act and still will be acting in disobedience. But if we know it's an unjust thing, then we probably should decide to accept the consequences. Yes. Yeah. Good. Another question? Well, oh, um, you, you go ahead. You know, I just I think uh, one of the more contentious discussions, if you go back even further in history, is uh, was the American Revolution sinful? Right. Sure. And there was a there was a seminar last year, I think, that, uh, you know, went into this question. It was really interesting. Uh, you know, I think that uh, I personally believe that that revolution, that armed revolution against the United Kingdom or for Great Britain at the time, uh, you know, that that was an element of rebellion and sin. But you have people that would vociferously argue differently based on, again, the, the challenge is that, uh, you know, the, there are a number numerous scriptural principles that you bring in and you apply to any given situation, especially if it's a situation that may not be explicitly uh, gone into in uh, the text. But, uh, you know, how you apply that, uh, those principles, again, each, it may differ from person to person with uh, genuine Christians in good conscience may have different views on this. Now, the scriptures are very clear that uh, we are to be in subjection to the authorities, like you were saying. So to me, that's, that's a really difficult uh, bar to clear. I don't know how you justify that, uh, you know, from a different perspective. But at the same time, we also know that regardless of, um, you know, the, the individual motivations of those people, individual people in history, that the Lord is sovereign over everything, right? And he is going to work, you know, his will through all of this. And even if the American Revolution, I might argue, was sinful, uh, nevertheless, the Lord worked great common good through it. And, uh, you know, just uh, even with the civil rights movement, you know, I personally am thrilled that black people do not have to sit in the back of the bus because that is sinful. That in itself is an unjust law, as you said. Now, in terms of tactics and, and how you go about doing that, I think you get into a little bit of a debate. Yeah. Another question back there? No? Okay. Hi. Hey <clears throat> One of the themes that came up during, I think, the Gospel Coalition was this concept of collective guilt. Mm -hmm. that, and I think it was the B.D. Anabile that said that our parents and our grandparents were responsible collectively for the death of Martin Luther King. Right. When we come back and say, well, we believe that we are individually responsible for our sin before the Lord, the answer is, well, look at the Old Testament. Israel was collectively condemned for their actions and collectively judged, you know, by being taken away in captivity. And like, how do you counter that sort of hermeneutic? That's a good question. Yeah, that's... Um just start with the hermeneutic itself, but you can't make that one-to-one -one correlation between um, those people groups and Israel being a covenant nation who under, whether it be initially strict theocracy, then a monarchy, um, where they had adhered to this covenant, the laws which would govern them as a people, then they're responsible to that. Now, when we try to make a translation or transfer that to America today and say, well, in the same sense, that you say, for instance, you hear the prayer of a Daniel or the prayer of a Nehemiah, or the prayer of the other prophets, and it talks about how we have sinned and your people have when some of them had not sinned. And most definitely at times the prophets personally had not, but there was that collective sense in which we are covenant people and we have a responsibility together in the same way that they had received that covenant blessing because they were simply a part of the people. They would also receive the curses as well, although they individually had not either deserved the blessing, which none of them did, or had performed things that would uh, warrant them being cursed. But they were cursed because of 
their fathers or their forefathers. Um, the exodus itself, the people that would live a life um, exile because of sins committed prior to them. But we, we can't make that transfer then to America, any other nation, and say because a former generation was responsible in some part for injustices or even an attitude or an atmosphere that would lead to someone else being harmed, then now I'm responsible for it. I mean, I, I talked about that a little bit last week, that a person that's now two or three generations removed is not responsible for that action. Um, the scripture, I think, is pretty clear that the father is responsible for his own sins and not the son responsible for his sins. Might there be consequences of sins? Um, absolutely. I think you, that is intimated in the Exodus, that visiting the sin into that, that next generation because there are consequences of a given action that leads, that has an effect on people far removed from it. But for me to have guilt, that's something very different. But you introduce the word guilt, that's very different. What is my guilt in that? Because guilt is obviously communicating responsibility. Um, and there is no guilt that a person has now because that happened then. And, and if they're calling for repentance, what would that be? Um, I alluded to maybe last week, say for instance, uh, being in Israel, go to the Holocaust Museum, um, the atrocities happening there, and engaging in people that are now, you know, their early 20s, um, and German, and now what should they feel because of that? I think we can still have some sense of a, a disappointment, a sorrow, because we realize our culture, our, our lineage was involved in something like that, and even say, boy, I'm, I'm so sorry that that happened, but that doesn't mean I have guilt. That's exactly right. And, you know, when you talk about that question about generational guilt or collective repentance or generational repentance, a lot of times people, again, you have to look everything in context, especially if it's an Old Testament reference. But Nehemiah 9 is one that they frequently cite about, oh, look, they're, they're kind of lamenting the past sins of past generations. And you're right. It's, it's a long prayer where they're lamenting. It's like, oh, our, our forefathers did this and they did that and that was wrong. That, that's just a statement of fact, right? But then when it gets to the actual repenting, you know, you go look at Nehemiah 9, verse 33. However, you are just in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. So now these people that are lamenting this kind of historical catalog of wrongs, which is all truthful fact, they're, they're lamenting their own sin and their own sinfulness. And, you know, as Carl said, you know, you look at Ezekiel 18.20, and that lays out the principle very clearly. The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. And that's, that's again, that's a statement about God's heart toward people and their responsibility, and it's repeated in the New Testament. Romans 2.6, God will render to each person according to his Deeds. Galatians 6, 4, and 5 would be another example of this. Good. Next. Michael. This is a softball. Huh. How much do you think this has been exacerbated kind of by the 1 Corinthians 1, you know, I'm with Paul, I'm with Apollos, and there's been a lot of people, I think, who've said, like, well, Matt Chandler said this, and John MacArthur said this. Could you talk a little bit to the dangers of that? Mm. And also... Um, and maybe how that might have contributed to this? Yeah, Christian celebritism is just sure. a bane to the existence of God's people in all sound sure. judgment. I mean, like, it, it doesn't matter what, what uh, your, you know, uh, favored teacher 
says. I mean, it matters whether what your favorite teacher says lines up with what the scriptures say. Amen. And and to the degree that's just not an argument. So and so says this. So what? You know, we're like we don't have popes in Protestantism, right? <laughs> we we do not have people speaking well, ex cathedra. <laughs> uh, the thing about to. it is sort of what you said in one sense they become such. Yeah. And, and we treat them as if they can simply speak. And we follow them. There, there should definitely be men that we trust. Uh, they live a life that's circumspect. They're, they're doctrinally sound. So they have a voice, and they should have a voice in our life. But I would say, and I think we'd all agree, um, a, a John MacArthur, I mean, if you're going to re- be a true a disciple of a MacArthur or anyone like that, it's, let's go back to biblical principles. Let's go back to text. And it's a Berean spirit. And in that Berean spirit is... Let me think this through individually. Let me look at what the text is saying. What are the principles that are involved? And now let me make a decision. Um, That becomes spiritually lazy when it's simply your reference points are simply another person who's thought about an issue, which you're essentially saying they've thought about it for you and they've made the decision for you. It really is. I mean, in, in my research over the years, especially at TMS and um, getting the degrees that I did, one thing that was always stressed is first source. Yeah, primary. First source. Yeah. Primary, first source. So you might see something, you might want to quote something and say, oh boy, let me look at it. And you go and find that first source. Man, that is out of context. I'm so glad that didn't show up in my term paper. <laughs> they did not complete that. I would have been highly embarrassed. And I did that throughout my degrees, and I had to look. And when I looked, I realized that's not out of context. They're misrepresenting them. They have used this a certain way. And you have to go back to that source and ask those questions uh, of any issue. And that's in part why we're doing this, not to say, and this isn't, even this panel here isn't for you to say, well, they've answered the questions for us. Um, Whenever I engage with someone, I'll go go to minute 46 and have them listen to that part. No, that's not the way to do it. Well, this is what they said in the Q&A. Hold on, let me rewind to this point. This is what they said. Mm. Here's your answer. Mm. It's to think through it, to give you some tools to point you through some principles, some logic, and scriptures so you can engage with it. All three of us want you to be Bereans, yeah. right? All three of us want you. Don't take our word for it. That's why I'm saying, what does the Bible say about it? Sure. And look, I, 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 I get in a number of discussions about these issues quite, quite often, actually. And I try to be as gracious as I possibly can. But one thing I always say, it's like, let's talk about the scriptures. And so often, you know, even with Christians, I'm talking about the scriptures and there's no real response. It's like, look, I wrote an article, like I said, about like why affirmative action is unbiblical partiality, right? And I said, look, anybody who disagrees with me on a biblical basis, come talk to me. I would love to engage you on the scriptures. And I haven't really gotten that. I've gotten a few kind of public policy concerns, but honestly, that's not my concern. I'm more concerned about what's a biblical view on the topic. And that's what we all want to be talking about in this area. Now, to your question, I think a lot of this too about the celebrity preachers, that can be a chicken and egg problem too, because sometimes it's like they follow one person, that's all they listen to. But another time it's like, oh, wow, this person said something I really like on this topic. And so I'm, you know, let's, let's quote him, but that reminds me of 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. Yeah, good. Yes or no? And then there's a follow-up. Is it true that you have to possess power to be racist? 
That's a very common uh, thing to be said these days that uh, in order to be racist, you must possess a degree of power in order to exert that power over pers- a person or group. Yeah. No. No. Okay. All right. Next question. How does. <laughs> therefore, no, you're not going to do that to us. Therefore, how, how does the view that power is necessary to racism fall short? Of a biblical sure. understanding of racism. Well, racism, if we first, how do we define it? Um, some sense of a, a person may have, a person's have, because they have some sense of superiority over another, and then they have a prejudice then towards them. Now, the power aspect comes in, and I mentioned last week where I remember 30 years ago, this was a part of the conversation uh, with me at the University of Cincinnati. And our sociology professor was trying to convince many of us that never say that you're a racist. Well, at that time, it was just understood that anyone could be a racist. Um, but no, you can't be because you're a minority. You don't have any power. Only people with power can be racist. So it's prejudice with power is racism. Um, but there's a fault to that argument. Um, and, and I was in conversation with my younger son recently. We were just talking about this. I said, well, if in fact you have to have power, how much power does one have to have in order to be a racist? So, and I said, here's an example. What if there is in fact um, uh, an African-American uh, has a law degree council member in Atlanta, Georgia, and there is a um, uneducated, poor, um, um, pr- someone that's Appalachian, not that Appalachia is it's bad itself, but then this person, what power do they have over this individual? How can they oppress him? How can they suppress him? And the problem I have with that is that the moment you say you must possess power, then, then now do we distinguish between being someone who has prejudice and a racist? Because now you're saying I can actually be, have prejudice but not be a racist. No, you can be a racist because it's since you have a prejudice in your heart, and the simple way to look at it is that you look at a certain group of people, and we'll use the word race right now, you look at a group of people, and you demean them in your heart, you think ill of them, and if you had power, you might seek to oppress them and suppress them. So one doesn't have to have power to do it, it has to be a perversion of the heart that sees them as inferior to yourself. Yeah, that definition of racism requires some kind of power in order to be racism is is a sociological left-wing concept sure. that emerged out of the sociological field. It's not even the Merriam-Webster definition, That's by the right. way. You go looking it up, and it's going to say a very standard definition of racism. It's certainly not the biblical definition. James 2.9, when talking about the sin of partiality, is says it very clearly. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgression as transgressors. So that's very clear. There's no, there's no issue of power dynamics there. It's very clear that there is partiality. And again, you look all through scripture, you see that God despises different weights and measures. He despises double standards. He, dis, he says, do not be partial either to defer to the great or show partiality toward in favor of the poor. So that's a concept throughout scripture. And it's, uh, so that power definition is, again, it's a, yeah. it's a left-wing yeah, sociological. It is. It's incredibly one. secular. And it's an attempt to say that essentially... Um, if you come up with that definition, it means that those that are in the majority are those that have the power, so therefore they're, they're the only ones that can be racist. Now, the question would be if I go to, and we can't then, and what was interesting, one definition, at least they're being somewhat honest about it that I came across, that they would say, yes, this has traditionally been um, whites 
that would have power and could be racist. However, society is developing now. People of color can also because they have a certain degree of power. And you have to you have to include that in your definition because, say, for instance, if I go to another country where the majority of people have power uh, and they are not people, uh, and they are people of color, then what are they? And what if they act towards the minority who are people that are not in color? Are they still racist? Ironically, a lot of uh, that perspective is very ethnocentric, isn't it? I yeah, mean, it's very, very much, much so. like that America and the politics of America and American history are the center of the world. Yeah, it is. And that's the thing about it. And even some of our discussions that we're having now that's taking place in the church today, it's sort of like a, um, it's a first world conversation mm. in some Absolutely. ways. It really is. Mm. Well, some would say, no, that's not true. You're being ignorant because if you think about the development of liberation theology and its connection to Roman Catholicism, that's something that began in South America and it had to do with the oppression of people there. So it's not really that. But I would say now that it is. Yeah. I, I think that you don't find the word racism in the Bible, but you do find the concept you know, sure. clearly proscribed, clearly you know, forbidden. And I think it goes under the banner of hatred. I mean, sure. right? Malice. It, it's the idea that that I express hatred or, or, or malice towards someone, uh, of bitterness in my heart towards someone because simply of their their ethnicity. Okay, I just want to touch on because someone asked me this about racism, you know, after last week, and I said one other thing you need to do is distinguish between um, because I asked the person, they said, "Well, I think they're racist," and I said, "Well, give me some examples of it." I said, "No, it's not racism." Let's make sure we distinguish between ignorance and insensitivity. Hmm. There are people who are racist, and they are in fact that. They have a hatred towards um, another person because they are not like them. And, but there's a difference between someone being ignorant. There are people that say things that you think, oh, they said that. Um, it doesn't make them a racist. Had it been things that I'm sure uh, someone else has said to another person, and it was insensitive to them. They used terms that were insensitive. And they were insensitive and perhaps even ignorant of that different culture, but that doesn't make them a racist. And I see that's what's happening today, that if a person makes a statement that you sort of, boy, you really put your foot in your mouth, that now they're branded as a racist. And that's not always the case. And this is an, that's an opportunity for learning. Right. right. And that's what I think uh, more often in the church. Right. If there if there is a maybe an ignorant or an insensitive comment that you don't think the person is deliberate about it or intentional about it, you might want to say it's like, look, I don't take personal offense, but I just want to make sure you're aware, you know, the way that you're presenting this, this might go very badly for you with someone in the world, as an example, that maybe is not going to be charitable toward you and believing sure. the best of you. And you're doing it for their benefit in that situation. You're not trying to get back at them or anything like that. It's just it's an opportunity for education. And I really do think that could be very helpful more in the church. This is the nature of, of, of um, in Hebrews uh, 10, 20, this is the stirring one another up uh, to, to, good, to good works, right? And uh, that there's an element of friction in, implied and, and actually clearly within that Greek verb from what I understand. Yeah, and a part of it too, think about it. If in fact we started with this idea that we are body, brothers and sisters, we're the priority, we can introduce the word family. Are we not a family? The family of God. And sometimes in a family, it's necessary to talk about the elephant that's in the room. Amen. And everyone's ignoring it. And all of oh boy, oh no, it's Thanksgiving again. And you're going to have those awkward moments at the table or at Christmas. Let's sit and talk about it and have dialogue so that maybe there may be something that someone can ask that will educate them so that when they interact with others, they'll be better off. Carl, last week... You uh, mentioned in your seminar that 
that given Martin Luther King's theology and uh, immorality, sort of habitual immorality, that it's it's going to be difficult for for people of sound biblical reasoning to conclude that he was genuinely a Christian. And I think that what happens, uh, it, what's been happening is that notion that somehow Martin Luther King might not have been saved has been just like just entirely scandalous to even say that out loud, given all the good that he accomplished. And and so so you say that, and some people might say, "Oh my goodness, how how in the world could you even imagine that?" And then another group of people, when you say that, say, "Yeah, he he said it. He said it right." You know that you know because because it's been sort of perverted by those who would make the gospel. Uh, something of if you do enough good in society, you can somehow be canonized. That sure. when they hear somebody say, "Oh no," because of his his denial of the bodily resurrection of Christ, denial of penal substitutionary atonement, Absolutely. denial of the virgin birth, and because of his serial adultery, we Christians of good conscience simply cannot say, "Yeah, well, because he accomplished all these other good things, we we don't have any questions about that." And yet, some people can sort of celebrate, right? Martin no. Luther King isn't saved. How would you yeah. respond to that? Yeah, that's a thank you. Um, you know, I did mention that briefly last week, and I quoted from one of his original works when he was at Crozer Seminary. And I and remember I talked about first source. I, I had that conviction a long time ago, and I've read other pieces and maybe things that people have said about him, but I wanted to read through his papers for myself. And so I read through his papers. I read through his writings what he said. And... Um, convinced all the more that he could know the Lord. Uh, he preached, ultimately, it was a social gospel. That's what it was. Um, and you read the things that he says about the cross and, and about scripture being mythology and about essentially Christ and the cross, since if we say that in fact um, it was sufficient, his death, then the penalty is already paid. There's no need for us to repent. We simply need to walk as children of God now. It by, and it becomes sort of an exemplary salvation. Mm. He has set a great example for us, and if we follow it, that is, in fact, salvation. So, and his, his lifestyle as well. But I remember growing up, uh, you, in some circles, you would think, well, it was just a conspiracy theory that he didn't believe that, or later on he changed, or it was a conspiracy theory. The FBI set him up when it came to his, the relationships uh, with other women. But as time went on, uh, even in African-American circles, the realization was that, yes, this is what he believed, and this is how he lived. But now the problem with it is, if you then ignore that, you have now created a work salvation. The gospel has now changed. If you're a gospel minister, I don't, you cannot say that based on what he believed doctrinally and how he lived, that he knew the Lord. Now, some would say, well, good, hooray, someone's finally said it. And sometimes they'll say, well, somebody of color has finally said it. I mean, if people are saying things like that. Yeah. Uh, I'm looking at the text. The text has said it. Mm. My, the definition of, uh, of Scripture has said it. Of salvation has said it. But you can't celebrate in that. Mm. And this is what I see sometimes. It's like, it's almost, it is almost like, hooray, now we know that he didn't know the Lord. Really? What, what sort of Christian response is that? The realization that now a man who did all of these things that were in some measure good, stands before the living God, Matthew chapter 7, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, take your Nobel Prize with you. Take the good that you did that helped, but I'll use in my good providence to help people, to help a society. It means nothing to me. 
Is that to be celebrated? It can't well, be. And part of this, I'm preaching a little bit now because uh, tonight I'm preaching from Colossians 4, 5, and 6 about walking with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the time. It says, and let your speech always be gracious as it were seasoned with salt so that you will know how to respond to each person. So there can be no celebration in that. No. That someone is separated from God from eternity and this false hope that this man had and he did not trust fully in the sufficient, powerful sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So this is what I notice sometimes even in these arenas with Christians um, that people are lauding and they're, you know, sending whatever. What are the little little messages that people like thumbs up to one another? Emojis. Yeah, the little emojis to one another. <laughs> yeah, I think sometimes it just gets lost. This I mean, is, it's lost. Did it, you just hear what was said? That he doesn't know Christ. Sobering and grievous. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And it, and it becomes points in a political discussion. Yeah, but it, and the issue that some people now, and I remember, and as I had remarked last week, that John Piper took some heat because he even just said he may not be. Yeah. And he took heat for that initially to say, well, you're, you're prejudiced. John Piper, of all people? At the MLK 50 at conference. At the MLK 50 conference. So. Let me just say this as well, if you don't mind. <laughs> I'll ex- I'll- so this is called microphone privilege right here. <laughs> Mike privilege. Mike privilege. The other issue about the gospel that's at stake, let's remember our mission. Yeah. So if now we can say that about a person and others as they are more informed, not everyone is as informed about his, his doctrine and his lifestyle. Now what you've communicated is the gospel allows for this. Yeah. Now the gospel is now redefined that I don't have to believe certain things and I don't have to live a certain way, I'm okay. There's a lot of things at stake here. Yeah. And Carl has just put his finger on why so many of us are so passionate about sure. this issue is because there is gospel confusion yeah. happening. Sure. And that is very grievous, right? Look, I, I have many things that I would prefer to do than have to kind of talk and write and teach on this specific issue, sure. you know, often, right? I, I, there, there's other things I would rather do. But the reason is, you know, I, I, this isn't like springing out of my own. It's a response to what I see as a highly unbiblical kind of concepts coming into the church, which I love, and that it's coming in with greater frequency and greater intensity. Mm-hmm. And again, this, this trying to, uh, you know, even calling things a gospel issue you know, causes confusion, right? And that's what people do is when they're trying to advance a social change or political type of argument, then they try to raise everything in priority to, oh, this is a gospel issue. This is a gospel issue. Well, no, the gospel is a gospel issue and mm-hmm. everything else might be an implication of being saved. Mm-hmm. Other, other types of sins might have an impact on your Christian witness, but it's not a gospel issue any more than adultery would be a gospel issue, right? It's it's a horrible sin, and it can totally poison your Christian witness, just like being overtly racist or, or, or misogynistic or overtly any of these other things could, could poison that witness. But that's not the gospel. Hmm. Sure. In line with that, then, so, I mean, just similarly, does the mission of the church include fighting to establish justice in society? Um, if If the gospel deals with what it deals with, 
What about those who would say, well, shouldn't, isn't the church called? I mean, good Samaritan, go and do likewise. Or to the extent you've done it to the least of these, you did it to me. Let, let justice roll down like waters. What, a, what about, isn't, isn't, this, isn't this the mission of the church? Boy, what is the mission of the church? It is the Great Commission itself to preach the gospel to Amen. every creature and teaching them to observe all things. Uh, we, I think, need to make a distinction between their individual choices that we can make to be involved in social matters. Mm. And let me back up a step and say, when we think about the whole discussion about social justice, we focus a bit more on issues of racial unity, racial reconciliation, inequality, equality. But it, it involves more than that. It, sex trafficking would be a part of it. What should be your stance? You mean to tell me your church doesn't have a ministry? Why aren't you giving a certain percentage of your budget to help um, fight against that? Uh, issues of abortion. What should be our voice in society when we speak against it? And what resources do we put into helping with marches and or helping uh, fund a clinic that gives alternative counseling to people? What about the issue of also immigration? What should the church say about the issue of immigration? What should be our stance on it? Should we go and support? So it's broader than even our discussion here, but this has sort of been in the forefront and it's caused perhaps the most friction in, in the church today. So we have to make sure that we make the main thing the main thing in the church, yeah. which is, is preaching the gospel. Uh, a person now individually may choose to be involved in those different areas. They, they are burdened by sex trafficking, what is happening in it. Uh, I'm horrified by it. I, I get um, sort of text messages that come from um, uh, LASD, Los Angeles Sheriff's Department, alerts that come. I got one recently. About 30 people arrested, uh, five women rescued from just that. That's horrible that that would happen. Uh, I cannot, um, I would not discourage anyone from being involved in it, but I can't now determine that my church must be involved in it, involved in it to a certain degree. What is that degree? That church will have to decide what that degree is. But to say that they're a socially inept church because they're not fully engaged in all of these areas um, is wrong. And I think just to just seeing the time is short, I want to just summarize some things on that. The key thought here is if everything is mission, nothing is mission, right? Not every good thing the church is called to do is its mission. Right, there are things that we ought to be doing that is not somehow it's not exalted to the 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 rarefied place of going to all the world and preach the gospel, make disciples of every nation. Right, so so when we say something is not the mission of the church, we don't mean that the church should have nothing to do with it. It just means that there's something that's exalted as its as as our mission, and if we give place to good things that are not the best thing, we can sometimes get off course. So uh, I mean, a clear example of that, you know, this is a good like philosophy of ministry verse in, in Luke 4, people are, are saying to Jesus, hey, stay here and, and heal the rest of the, the, this town neighboring, and, or hang out and, and do more miracles, do more healings, because this is really helpful. And Jesus says, you know, I, I've got to go and preach the gospel of the kingdom to other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. Obviously, Jesus was also sent to heal people because he did it, right? But when, but when it came to, okay, I have this good thing I could do, I could stay here and heal the rest of these people, or I could, or I, I could go on and I could preach the kingdom of God in other cities, his sense of mission from the Father moved him from that good thing to a better thing. 
So for one thing, if everything is mission, nothing is mission. Um, another thing to remember is that the church is not Israel. And this is where some of the, the, the let justice roll down like water, seek the welfare of the city, Jeremiah 29, 7. This is where a lot of this goes wrong uh, in, in that one-to-one application from uh, an Old Testament text given to a, a theocratic nation who did exist as a civil society, Right, they did have a government, and they did have people that were oppre- that were oppressed or, or being uh, being oppressed, and their and their law commanded them. God commanded them work justice in society, transform justice within the covenant community of Israel, because that's your wisdom. Deuteronomy four five to eight: the people, the nations are going to hear it, and they're going to say, "Your God is wise. Tell me about this God." But as the church, the church is not a, a, a theocratic nation under a, a, a civil uh, law. We are, we are a spiritual people, a spiritual house, right? And that we don't transfer uh, Israel's society to oh, whatever society we happen to be in as the spiritual people of God. The church is not Israel, number one. Number two, we can't usher in the kingdom, right? The kingdom is going to come with the king. And no matter what we can, we could add citizens to the kingdom by preaching the gospel. We can live in a way that's commensurate with uh, our king's regimen, Matthew 5 to 7, right? The sermon, the sermon on the Mount, the king comes and gives the kingdom program. We can live in a way that matches kingdom life, but we can't usher in, build, or, or somehow speed the coming of the kingdom. Christ alone is the, is the king, and the king will come with the, ki- the kingdom will come with the king. And then one of the things that Carl mentioned there is that there's a difference between corporate and individual ethics, right? There's a difference between, like, the, the word church is not just the plural of Christian. There are, there's a Christian, there's Christians, and then there's the church. And, and the church speaks of the institutional body that Christ himself has instituted. Um, not everything that the church is called to do am I as an individual Christian called to do. I'm not called to administer the ordinances. I'm not called to baptize people in my backyard or have communion one-on-one. These are things that the church does. I'm not called to exercise church discipline as an individual Christian, like, hey, I can find three guys who disagree with you, so you're out. No, like it's, 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 a, it's a prerogative of the church as a body, of the church corporate. So in the, in the same way, the church corporate isn't to love my wife like Christ loved the church, the way that I'm supposed to love my wife is Christ loved the church. Individual commands versus corporate commands. So what we would, what we would say is individual Christians, we, the church ought to be making such disciples that individual Christians who are burdened about th- these particular issues, whether it's abortion, whether it's racism, whether it's uh, sex trafficking, and, and any other social injustice, that those men and women might participate in, the, in, in society according to their conscience, according to their stewardship and the time and the resources that they have to give to work against those ends, right? But to say, well, because the church isn't subsidizing a program for political lobbying against X, Y, or Z, that, that's misunderstanding the mission of the church. So understand that the church is not Israel, that we can't usher in the kingdom, and that the distinction between corporate and individual ethics. Yeah, and just on that notion of individual ethics, uh, this, this has to do with uh, liberty of conscience and, and the, the notion of calling, right? Even as Carl said, uh, you know, there may be a woman who had a passion to fight sex trafficking. Praise the Lord for that, mm-hmm. right? You know, and there are individuals who may have certain callings in life. Uh, uh, there's a woman I really admire named Rachel Den Hollander, and she uh, gave a great gospel presentation in connection with uh, the abuse situation with Larry Nassar, uh, who was the, a doctor who abused hundreds of, of, uh, of, of girls and women, and it was outrageous and tragic. And she has a passion to fight against sexual abuse. Praise the Lord for that. Uh, you know, but the problem becomes, I think, especially, and you see it most often in the 
the context of race, but not exclusively. The problem becomes, again, when you start hearing people trying to elevate this to a gospel issue or they're trying to imply, look, if you're not on board with this, if you're not actively devoting more time and money and energy to fighting this, then either you're in sin or you're not being a good Christian or you're not being my ally or my friend. And it's this, this kind of like, you need to do this. That's, that's where I draw the line because that's where you're starting to go from the liberty of an individual's conscience for himself or herself to trying to bind the conscience of another, saying you need to prioritize what I think is important, and that way lies legalism. Hmm. Quite questions from the group? Oh, back here. Sorry. Go ahead. Um, well, that was pretty much the same. I mean, what you guys addressed right now was pretty much what I was going to ask. But okay. I guess – would it be wrong for an individual in terms of the liberty of conscience to be like, I'm just going to focus on preaching the gospel? No. I, no, I hope and not. And not deal great. with the other matters? <laughs> no, sure. I mean, that, that, that's something that must be done, and, and these, other, these other things have to be done in, in addition to that. If you, like, is it wrong if, as an individual, you're like, I just want to preach the gospel because these other issues seem to be making me more like earthly-minded, temporal focused. Amen, brother. Yeah. That's what I say to that. You know, sure, and that, that may be your, your individual choice. There may be other people who can balance that out. They can preach the gospel, and it is, they do it consistently, but as well, they're engaged in these other areas. Mm-hmm. If it, well, let's, yeah, we got to be careful, friend. Oh, uh, <laughs> can I ask one more uh, yeah. kind of follow-up? Um, and how do we engage in, I guess, you know, loving our neighbor by meeting their needs without, like, promoting victim mentality? Well, that's a, wow. That's the question of mercy ministry. Yeah. Uh, I think that, I think that any, any heart that has experienced the compassion of Christ upon them in their salvation uh, is, to, is, to, is to bend out that compassion toward others. And that expresses itself preeminently in the in the seeking to relieve eternal suffering because eternal suffering is the worst kind of suffering but but a heart that has experienced the kindness of Christ will not be indifferent to temporal suffering either and so i think that while we recognize that uh, if we give a guy a sandwich for a day and we feed him for that day we've not saved his soul nevertheless a, a heart that knows Christ wants to see people relieved from the burdens of life. Now, and better than just give the guy off the, on the 405 off ramp, you know, a subway, take him to subway, hear his story, engage him, uh, preach the gospel to him as well. Um, you, you want to you want to meet temporal needs because they matter, but you want to meet eternal needs most most fundamentally. Over here. I think he's had his hand up before over there. Okay, so I kind of mentioned that some several people. Yes, how do you explain the term all things according to God's will? Do all things happen according to God's will? Yes, um, and the, the, the key to remembering that, to understanding that, is that Scripture sometimes speak of God, speaks of God's will in uh, two different senses. One is the sense in which it's, it's what theologians call his decretive will, or his will of decree, uh, where, where Scripture speaks of uh, Ephesians 1.11, right? The God who works all things after the counsel of his own will, or when God says in Isaiah 46.10, I will accomplish all my good pleasure, or, or, or uh, when Job says, I know that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him. And, and so in that sense, the will of decree, that which will infallibly come to pass, uh, God ordains all things. I think that's the clear teaching of Scripture. And and yet there's the will of what we call the will of precept or the will of command, because God clearly prescribes against things that he, in his will of decree, uh, ordains to happen. Um, he, he tells Adam, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and yet 
His will of decree includes the fall because the cross is not an afterthought. The cross is not plan B. It's plan A. And if the cross is plan A, then sin is plan A, and therefore God ordains what he prescribes against. You say, make sense of that for me. I can't. But I, I did try in my Sundays in July seminar yeah. from, from the first, which is entitled God and Evil. So, so a practical application of it might be that, say, for instance, um, and I mentioned this last week, even with the issue of American slavery, that ultimately decreed by God that as he's moving history along, but yet people responsible for their given actions yes. in any given time. Yeah. Um, is that something that we can, um, in a, a finite minds, um, totally understand? No, we cannot. But it's in perfect harmony with God. It's a clear teaching it, of Scripture. It goes back to the idea, you meant it for evil, but... God meant it for good. How can that be? The brothers are still responsible for their action, but if you think about the flow of redemptive history, that was necessary because the flow of redemptive history is that a people would come together, uh, they would be oppressed, they, there would be an exodus, and that is one stage in that flow of history which God decreed, but a part of that uh, decree was also the violation of his clear will, yeah. which is the jealousy of his brothers, the hatred towards him, um, in one sense, selling into slavery as well. Yeah. Sundays in July, July 1st, God and evil. Carl, you wanted to address, uh, so here, you know, I talked about what a, what a, what's the biblical understanding of equality. You, you picked on socialism a lot last week. Um, doesn't Scripture say in Acts 2 and 4 that the church had all things in common and they were, you know, that nobody had need because they sold everything they had and they, they met each other's needs? Yeah, it does say that. Yes, it does say that, but the question is, how does that transfer to today, the church, and then in society? What, let's just look at it for a moment. Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, familiar passage. Um, the congregation believed, who believed were one heart and soul. They didn't claim anything belonging to him, to his own, but all things were common property to them. Great power, it says, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection Abundant grace was upon them all, for there was not a needy person among, where does it say? Them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as had need. So obviously in the context of the church, the church, um, you would think about it, we didn't get to Second Corinthians 8 and 9, um, thinking about people that would have been um, let go of, of jobs, persecution, needs are very real for them. So now in this community, they're sharing amongst themselves. And it says, um, there was someone, though, in verse 1 of chapter 5, but a man named uh, Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And they kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. So they lay it at his feet. We know the confrontation. Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land. Now, if you stop reading there, you would think, well, there, this, this is clearly um, Marxist. Because now here's the percentage that's required that you give, and then we distribute it evenly. Because you have now lied. But we have to read the rest of the story, don't we? And it says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? So what is that communicating? When you sold it, even now you could determine how much you would give. 
Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to, to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over them when they heard of it. And they carry him away, and his wife um, says this. And notice in verse 8, and Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. And we know what happened to her as well. The issue here is their deception. The issue is that it was their property, and they decided that we were going to give this percentage of it, and it was de deception towards the apostles and ultimately towards God. It's not because they held back a certain amount. And it wasn't because I believe the apostles required them to do that or required them to give a certain percentage of what they had sold. <clears throat> so that cannot, I think, be transferred to society. Hmm. Uh, it's taking care of the body. And then the question would be, if we really want to apply this, does that mean that we would have to enact Marxism um, in society? And we should be the proponents then of Marxism, that we should, in fact, sell our own we should distribute that not only to the church, but outside the church as well. Hmm. Yeah. The answer is no, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Good. Because if you look all throughout Acts, it's voluntary charity and good works. Amen. Sure. And I did just want to end here. Um, it is inevitable that we face injustices as Christians. It's inevitable that people sin against us, whether it be by racism or by some other way, but maybe even because of racism or some sort of partiality. What is the Christian's biblical responsibility for responding to being sinned against? Yeah, and I think this is where we can look to the example of Christ in 1 Peter 2, 19 through 23. And uh, it's just really um, just such a beautiful picture of looking at Christ. And even when he was reviled, he did not revile in return uh, is in that passage. And it's just, it, it's just such an incredible picture of uh, starting with verse 19 in 1 Peter 2, for this finds favor for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. I mean, that's the perfect example, I think, for us to, to follow when we're treated with uh, treated poorly in any way. Um, now, with that said, I think we have to make a distinction, too. Uh, we also have examples in Scripture. You see it uh, throughout uh, many places, in particular in Acts, uh, but uh, th there are examples of people that are, um, you know, appealing to proper authorities that are in place, right? Romans 13 would say, uh, the verses 1 through 7, that the, the government is there, the governing authorities are there to praise the good and to bear the sword against the evil. So the government is there as one recourse for your protection. Elders also can be here if there's an issue in the church. We're, we're here for your protection. We're to guard the flock, and we're to watch out against uh, things that would savage the flock, whether it's bad doctrine or whether it's an abuser, as an example. Uh, husbands are, are there to protect the household. There are all these structures which exist to, to offer a measure of protection. But I do think that you know, when we look at the example of Christ, you see a very clear difference between, I think, uh, much of what the world would say, which is we should be trumpeting our victimhood, we should be uh, trumpeting our grievances, we should be looking to uh, have... Uh, look, 
we're premillennialists, right? We know <laughs> that everything is ultimately going downward, and the only one that's going to fix everything is the coming of Jesus Christ. Amen? And, that, and that's it. We're never going to fix this. Sure, we can do good works and we could do charity, and we're called to do that as Christians. But trying to have this attitude where everything is going to be perfect here in society is, is one that is both naive and also, I think, again, not in accordance with what we see in Scripture with respect to theology. Yeah. It just, for this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly, like Christ, because he was entrusting himself to the judge who judges righteously. We don't bear, we don't bear grudges. We don't nurse bitterness. We, we bear up under unjust suffering and, and trust that our God is the judge who will deal justly. Let me, let me pray, and we'll go. Father, we do thank you for your word and, and for your church. Father, I pray that you'd protect these precious saints from the onslaught of unbiblical uh, ideas and, and thoughts and thinking uh, from the strongholds that, that raise themselves up against the knowledge of God. I pray that, that you would make them salt and light in the world, that they would be able to take a biblical worldview to the, the marketplace, to the neighborhood, and that they would speak of Christ, uh, the one who has died to save sinners, which is preeminent above all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.